Let's open up in prayer because I need God's help. We all need God's help uh, that we might understand and benefit from his word this morning. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we need your help. We know that every part of your word is for our benefit, that we might be trained and equipped for every good work. We thank you that all of it is an expression of your beautiful character and your plan and your will for us. But we also know that this is a book which you have declared there is blessing in reading, hearing and putting it into practice. So Lord, help us to be people with softened hearts to hear, respond, uh, put into practice uh, the things that you set forth in these chapters We ask in Jesus' name, amen. What is every parent's one question they don't want to hear when you're going on a road trip holiday? Are we there yet? What is a child communicating when they say, are we there yet? Are they saying, mum and dad, I don't want to go on holidays? Are they saying, I don't want to spend two weeks having fun? If it was two weeks. What they're saying is, the final destination is good, I want to be there, but the journey I'm not enjoying. Just get me there. And I often wonder, should there come a time in the future when you can travel large distances in a really short period of time, if kids' tolerance will just be sort of proportion to that was like five seconds too much when are we there yet but these three chapters that we look at expresses something of the hardship of the journey of living in this world in which we live in as we await and we look forward to with a glorious hope of being united with our savior being eternally with him This has probably been the hardest sermon I've ever had to prepare in now almost 10 years of ministry. It's covering three chapters of a difficult book and specifically three very difficult chapters. Now, I always knew from the moment that I decided we were going to do the book of Revelation in 13 weeks that we were going to be looking at large portions and as a result not able to go into such fine detail as we might do as we've worked our way through other books of the Bible. But there are times when I think that's probably helpful with a book like Revelation. Helpful for a number of reasons. One is that there are many strong evangelical Christians who have very different understandings of the book, how to approach it, what the structure of the book is. And so if you've been listening along and thinking, What I've been hearing throughout this series is completely different than how I understand it. Don't for a moment think that there's being a divide being between this is biblical Christianity and any other view is not. Because there are many, lots and lots of brothers and sisters in Christ who are solidly evangelical who come to different conclusions and I respect that. But one of the joys of going through at a quicker pace is that There are sometimes dangers, I think, in trying to connect all the finer details and making a point for every fine detail. 
So not only have people had different approaches, different interpretations, but as I thought about Jesus' first coming, we look back at the prophecies that foretold Jesus' first coming and we think, it was so clear. Why, why didn't they get it? But when you read the Gospel accounts, it appears that nobody made the correlation that the Messiah must suffer and die. And I think as we look at the book of Revelation where it talks about things both present and future, it's not surprising because we don't have the advantage of seeing these events having completed and transpired that we understand the process. Like we understand what the Old Testament said of Jesus' first coming because now that we've seen the events, we can look back and it is obvious. And probably some of the um, diversity in approaches and understandings would have to do with that, I'd imagine. But one day we'll all see Jesus face to face and we'll all be corrected and understand things that we didn't understand that we may have got wrong. If you're visiting or you've missed a number of weeks, the way which we've been approaching this book is to say it is not a historical or chronological sequence of events where this takes place, then this, then this, or from start to the end. We've also said it is not a book that primarily only speaks of things entirely future to us, but rather predominantly speaks about what the Bible calls the last days, which when the Bible uses that term, it doesn't speak about the final moments before the end of the world, but of all time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. That it describes what is the common human experience in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And it's not explained in a sequential list of events. We see there being retelling. We see there being cycles of retelling the same period of history between the first and second coming. The example I gave is like a sporting event. You watch it on TV, yet there are lots of cameras around the stadium, each focusing on different things, having a different perspective. And throughout the book of Revelation, we see this period of human history being repeated and retold with different emphasis, uh, different focus. For example, last week in chapter 6, verses 12 to 17, we saw final judgment described, yet there's still another 16 chapters to follow on. We'll see it again this morning in chapter 11, 15 to 19. But before we dive into these chapters... I want to cast our minds back to something John describes of himself and his recipients in the first chapter. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Because these three words probably summarise to some extent these three chapters. Tribulation, kingdom and patient endurance. If you've taken the time to read all of the reading that we're um, speaking about this morning, you'll see there is much tribulation, need for patient endurance. But in the middle of that, there is kingdom. There's the idea that we belong to the one who is reigning, the king who will conquer, who has conquered, and who will bring all things under his rule. Today we're going to look at how judgment affects creation, Rebellious humanity, we're going to realise that that we don't know everything. We see the church as a persecuted and proclaiming. And we'll see that he shall reign forever and ever. 
So firstly, judgment impacts creation. Last week we saw seven judgments as, as Jesus opened up this scroll and each seal, there was another judgment which came forth. All of which where we see where it's from within the throne room of God that these things were sent into the earth. Once again, now we see seven judgments in the forms of the blowing of seven trumpets. And every single one of these judgments, just like last week, they're restricted, they're limited, and they serve as a final warning that, of, a, of a warning that there is a final and complete, total judgment which is coming in the return of Christ. Remember when Jesus was quizzed about these things, he says, there will be wars, there will be rumours of wars, but this isn't the end. This is only the beginning of the birth pains. This is only the beginning of what will be the common human experience between my first coming and my second. And while there's similarities to last week, if you've read these chapters, you'll notice that the intensity is ramped up quite a bit in these chapters. We see in the first four judgments, the first four trumpets grouped together as the way in which they affect creation. The land, the sea, the rivers, the sky, each of which indirectly affect people who rely upon these things. As the first trumpet is blown, you see destruction of one third, maybe literal, maybe not, of the earth. We see similar type things happening back in the, in the book of Exodus and in the, in the plagues there in chapter 9, the seventh plague. Speak of a second judgment where it's described of a mountain on fire thrown into the sea. Which may speak of things like volcanoes. But you remember, John is well versed in the Old Testament. And often the Old Testament used this language to speak of, of great powerful nations as mountains. Look for the way, for example, that Jeremiah speaks of the destruction of Babylon. God says, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. And then down to verse 42, The sea has come up on Babylon. She is covered with its tumultuous waves. So on this occasion, the language which John is familiar with is the language of God taking nations and bringing judgment upon them. Throughout the Bible, right from Genesis chapter 11, Babel was was representative of humanity's rebellion against God. So it seems more like the trumpet, not speaking of a physical mountain on fire, but the way in which God rises up nations the way God destroys nations who would set themselves up in pride and disobedience against him. In the blowing of the third trumpet, we see pollution of water sources. That's again we see in Exodus chapter 7. And it was also a common method used in war. People would try to affect their water sources, try to affect their food sources. And in the blowing of the fourth trumpet... We see a partial darkening of the sun, moon and stars in contrast to what we saw back in chapter 6 which described the total darkening in the return of Christ. But as disastrous as all these things sound, 
and we've seen these things playing out in history and will continue to play out in history, they're not as bad as the final three trumpets. John says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that these three angels are about to blow. And so with the fifth trumpet, we see that judgment impacts rebellious humanity. We see an intense demonic torment against unbelievers. We're introduced in the beginning to an angel who has fallen from heaven, who is later described as being the king of the bottomless pit or the king of the abyss, depending on your translation. Quite fairly to be associated with Satan himself. He's described here as a baton or a polyon, which means destroyer. Also a number of the particular Domitian and Nero equated themselves with the Greek god Apollo. But what you'll notice when you see the torment which takes place, a lot of the language will remind you of what happened in what in Job's day. That this, these powers have no authority in and of themselves. Remember with Job, Satan, Satan says, you, you just give him... He's just obedient to you because you give him all this stuff. And God permits Satan boundaries, what he can and can't do. Notice here that this angel who's fallen from heaven is given a key to the abyss. He's told what he can do. He's told what he can't do. If you read through this chapter throughout the week, you probably saw all of the imagery and all of the description and think, this is just doing my head in. And you won't help but notice that there's one word that keeps coming up over and over, and it's that word, like. This was like this, and it had this, like this. So it was not a literal, concrete description of what it is. For example, it speaks about this torment coming from locusts. Yet it says... These locust-like figures cannot eat the grass, plants or trees. That's kind of what locusts do. Nor do you take that and go the Hal Lindsay approach from the, from the 70s and say these are some helicopters and demonic forces coming towards you. Their activity is best described in verses 4 to 6 of chapter 9. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. It's quite a horrific sort of picture, isn't it? They're given permission from the very throne room of God to torment. But their torment is limited. It's limited in terms of a space of time. They're told what they cannot destroy the plants, the grass, the trees. They cannot do any to those who have, who have the seal of God. They can only harm. They cannot kill. But do you know what thing it seems odd? 
Who is it they are given permission to torment? And who is it that they torment? (coughs) They torment those who do not have the mark of God. They torment unbelievers. Remember the way the Bible speaks about those who are outside of Christ are under the rule of Satan. And what do they get for, for being obedient and following his rule? They get tormented by him. It's his age-old deception. He promises freedom. You can just live for yourself. You're your own man. You dig down, we, we're enslaved to him. We get tormented. But however, those who had the seal of God, those who belonged to Christ, were protected from that torment. Now, last week, one of the things when you're standing up, thank you, Samuel. One of the things when you're standing up from the front, you see everybody's reaction. And I can tell you, when I said last week in chapter 7 that the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel were the same as the great multitude from all tribes and tongues and nations, there were some very puzzled looking faces. And as I said, there are many strong evangelical scholars who would have a very different approach to this than I would. But if you take the approach that the 144,000 is a specific set number of Jewish Christians, and these are the ones who are described as having the mark of God in, in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14, then you would need to somehow deal with this problem. In this trumpet, God gives permission for demonic forces to torment so greatly that people would wish they could die and they couldn't and the only people who would be protected for it would be 144 Jewish Christians. It would mean that you'd have to say God is comfortable to inflict that sort of torment upon any Jewish Christians beyond the 144,000 and upon all Gentile Christians. Something which I think fits outside the character of God. This torment, many wish they could die, but they can't. This is the first of the woes that the eagle spoke of. Now as the sixth trumpet is blown, we see these four angels bound at the river Euphrates. Again, the voice comes from the throne room of God calling these angels saying, they can kill one third of the world whether it's specifically 33 and one-third percent exactly, or if it's a a large number. But what is it about the Euphrates River? Do we need to be checking our newspapers to see anything happen around that area? You see, at the time when it was being written, that was the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire. And the emperors were, were concerned that the Parthians would come in and invade and take their land and take over. In Israel's history, it was across the Euphrates that both the Assyrians and the Babylonians came and took them into captivity for their rebellion against God. I don't think the reference is particularly geographical, but a reminder of how God will rise up armies and nations against pride nations to punish them. The language is quite graphic, killing one-third, 
speaking of 200 million horsemen coming in these forces. But the most surprising thing is again the response of those who were not killed. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see, hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or of their sorceries or of their sexual immorality or their thefts. Isn't that just shocking? That people would see such grand devastation and it never crossed their mind of why am I trusting in this little wooden trinket? Perhaps the way in which I'm living isn't pleasing to God. These warnings are set to remind us that there is a full and complete judgment which awaits all of us. Paul tells his church in Rome in chapter 2, he says, God's patience, that is, God not giving us what we deserve, immediately was supposed to lead us to repentance, that we would turn to him. But that's how enslaved we get to sin and to Satan. That even in the face of something like this, people won't change. Now much like we saw last week when we saw these six seal judgments, we saw a sequence of six, then there was a bit of an interlude before coming to the seventh, and the same thing happens again in chapter 10 right through to 11.14. An angel comes, we're in Revelation 10, from heaven holding a little scroll. Some equate this angel with Jesus, being that it describes of having a voice of a lion. He's described as having one foot on the sea, one foot on the land. From the picture of Paul gives to the Corinthian church in chapter 15, it says, he must reign until all of his enemies have been placed under his feet. The idea that being under the feet meaning under the rule of. The one who has rule over both the earth and the sea. And there are seven thunders. In other words, something is spoken. And John's just about to write it down. We're about to get it in our book of Revelation. Until he's told, don't write that down. There are something that John knew there and then that we don't know. Paul had a similar experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he says he was called up to the third heaven and he was told things he was unable to speak or tell anybody about. If they're not allowed to tell us about it, why include it? I think because sometimes we have a propensity to think that we know it all. We need to be reminded there are things in the plans and purposes of God we have no idea about. It concerns me when people have this such clear-cut idea of this is what God's doing, this is exactly how it's going to go all the way till the return of Christ, here's all my diagrams, this is exactly the steps it will take, this nation will do this, pulling out your newspapers left, right and centre. It's the stuff we just don't know. But there's one thing we do know that's revealed, unchanging, you can bank on it. He swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea that and what is in it, that there should be no more delay. 
but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded, the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to the prophets. Regarding the seventh trumpet, there will be no delay. Human history will not change it. Human powers will not change it. Demonic powers cannot change it, set it forward or set it back a single second. That time has been set and appointed. And then John's instructed to eat the scroll, much like Ezekiel was. It was both sweet and it was bitter. And that whatever he was told, the plans and purposes of God are both sweet and bitter. There is sweetness in the gospel, in the plans and purposes of God, in that he has provided the way of salvation that we need that we do not have to incur his judgment because it was poured upon Jesus Christ and by faith we can be free from that. We can be protected, marked as his own for an eternity with him. But there's also that discomfort of we live in a world where there's still struggles. There's that discomfort of knowing that that same hope is held out to the world, yet many would prefer to remain in their sin. Here's a wonderful sweet news of salvation, hope, forgiveness, eternal life. And because there is a hope available, John is told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. In light of the fact there is a day appointed, you need to proclaim to all people, all, all tribes, all tongues, all nations. And it's not just John who's reminded the importance of this proclamation. We turn to Revelation 11, 1 to 14, we see the church as both persecuted and proclaiming. I've already said we're covering a lot of content in this uh, in the sermon this morning, and I'm sure many questions have been raised as it is, and please come chat to me any time if you have um, questions about things we didn't touch or things that you might disagree with, with things we did touch. So if you haven't had questions already, you probably will have questions about some of the things that I'm going to say in these verses. These verses are some of the most controversial passages and most disagreed upon sections in the book of Revelation. Second being, of course, chapter 20 when it speaks about the nature of the millennium. Is is he speaking here about a physical temple that will be in Jerusalem or is he speaking symbolically of the church? As he speaks of a beast, is he talking about an end time individual towards the end before Jesus returns, an antichrist figure? Or is he speaking broadly of of part of a cycle of demonically powered forces who would oppose the church? We don't have time to go into full detail of every single aspect or or to even go into the details why I'm not convinced of other approaches. But do feel free to ask at any time. John has given a measuring staff to measure out the temple of God, its altar, And the worshippers. I'm not convinced there is a biblical need to have a temple built again in Jerusalem. I don't think there is any prophecy that requires a physical temple to be built again in Jerusalem. When Jesus came, he understood himself to be the fulfilment of what the temple symbolised. That is, the very presence of God amongst his people. 
In Matthew 12, 6, he says, speaking of himself, something greater than the temple is here. And as you read through the New Testament references to the temple of God, it is always a reference to God's people, the church, in which God dwells amongst his people by his spirit. To give you just one of many examples, Paul writes the Ephesians to a Gentile group saying, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in him the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul speaks about it in Corinthians uh, chapters 3 and 6 as well. So rather than measuring out a new physical building, measuring out in the Old Testament language, which is very familiar to John, often spoke of God's knowledge, care and protection for his people. We see that symbolised there in Ezekiel chapters 40 and 41. But even just to go back further in the book of Revelation itself, In the letter to the Philadelphian church, we have these words. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven. The one who conquers will be a pillar in the temple, will be the new Jerusalem. So what of this outer court that is trampled on by the nations in verse 2? If we're saying that this temple is the church made of Jew and Gentile believers in Christ, then those outside of those who are in proximity to, possibly those nominal Christians who have connection to the church, but not in the saving grace of Jesus Christ. But what's the link between this temple and these two witnesses? I'd say the temple, again, is the two witnesses. The temple represents the church. The two witnesses represent the church, both of Jew and Gentile in Christ. They're described, look at how these two witnesses are described. They are the two olives, it first says. Romans 11, you've got that picture of of an olive tree, the natural one, with 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 the other olive, wild olive branches grafted in, that one church formed of Jewish and Gentile believers in Christ. They're described not only as two olives, but as two lampstands, a picture which has been used throughout Revelation, lampstands of the church. We see these two witnesses representing a church that proclaims, that prophesies, and also suffers. The ministry of the church during this age, between his first and second coming, compares to the ministry of Elijah and Moses. Who will pray and the rain will come, the rain will stop. Who will call upon and and waters and blood like the plagues of Moses. It's a strange thing as you read through some of the judgment descriptions in the book of Revelation. A lot of times there are a connection to the prayers of the saints. Remember we saw back in chapter 5, we saw those who were martyred saying, how long till you avenge our blood? And then last week we also saw again how it said their bowl with the prayers of the saints is what was thrown onto the earth to vindicate their prayers for final justice. 
The church proclaims and prophesies. And then the beast arises from the abyss to wage war and to conquer. Again, I don't believe this is an individual antichrist figure towards the end of um, human history. Certainly from the abyss we've already seen is the realm of the demonic of which Satan is king. But the writer who writes these things in his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, says, now is the last hour. And many antichrists have already come. So it's seen as throughout human history where demonic forces are raised up through people, through nations, through events, with the intention to destroy and to cripple the Christian church. The nature of their conquest here even says, described to a point when it appears like death. Now that this oppression and raging war against the church would be so strong that it would look to the point that the church gets to a stage where its voice and influence in the world has been so squashed that it amounts to death. And it says the people celebrated. They, they even exchanged gifts. We see that happening in some countries around the world where the voice and the influence of the church has been so squashed that in the public sphere there is nothing there to be seen. We've probably even seen some elements of that in our own lifetime in Australia where we see how did this immense hostility towards anything Christian come to be when not so long ago this was kind of our heritage that we stood proudly upon. I think the book of Revelation gives us a bit of a clue as to where and why that comes from. But even though there was the, the apparent to the eye demise of the church, it says that was short-lived. It describes as three and a half days, and then God breathes his life back into it. And then in surprising the earthwork, the shaking of the earth, it says one-tenth were killed, and the rest glorified God. Now some see in this an idea that at the return of Christ, there will only be one-tenth who are destroyed and the rest at that stage will be believers. I don't know if that's true or not, but it would be wonderful if it was true. So we've had the second and the, th- the first and the second of the woes that have spoken about by the eagle. That was the sixth trumpet. Then the final of the seventh. He shall reign forever and ever. We have a description once again for the second time in the book of Revelation, a final judgment. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Notice what it says here. When the kingdom, not kingdoms, plural, kingdoms singular, when the world system as it is now, the Bible speaks of, of Satan being the ruler of this age, the prince, the power of the air. When the kingdom of this world in its entirety becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. It was never in doubt that it was going to come. It was promised, it was set in stone. It was unchangeable. No power, no authority can challenge that. And it is the sure and certain hope that we live by. Christ, the conquering king, 
will return. He will reign forever and ever. We won't be singing the hallelujah chorus afterwards, but it would be fitting. Even when they went through a time when, to all appearances, the church looked like it had been completely wiped out. God's plans are never thwarted. And the 24 elders who we've previously seen gathered around the throne in worship say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. There's no more any and is to come because he has come. We've seen that phrase repeated throughout the earlier chapters. God who was and is and who is to come. The is to come is no more. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying, the destroyers of the earth. It says, he has come. His wrath has been poured out. Blessing to those who are his and destruction to those who are opposed to him. Then John sees the temple in heaven and he sees the ark. But if you recall the New Testament, I mean, sorry, the Old Testament, anyone who looked upon the ark instantly would die. But now a redeemed people who fully purified, who go to be with him, can look upon these things and live. The call to patient endurance. The call to conquer is worth it. Our king reigns. John says in his first letter, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what, he w- and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he does appear, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes like this purifies himself just as he is pure. Do you long for this? Do you long for a time when you'll see him in all of his perfection? When you won't have the struggle against your flesh and sin? When all of the things that have been corrupted by sin entering this world, pain, death, suffering, will be no more. When the one who from now, from our perspective, who is to come, has come. When the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. What an encouragement it is for us and for John to do what he was called to do and to do what the church was told to do. To proclaim what God has done in Christ. To, to take away his wrath from us. To secure us and mark us as his own. Now, some of you may read these chapters and think, I think God's gone a bit overboard. Now, that sounds a little bit harsh. Can I put it to you that if you think of it in that way and you think that God's response to sin is a little bit too much, that maybe our problem is that we have too high of a view of mankind and too low of a view of who God is? That if we understand how perfect and holy God is, that everything we have is because he has graciously provided it to us, 
For us to shake our fist in his face saying, I don't need you, I'm big enough to rule my own life, I'm going to live with complete disregard for you, I'm not going to give you the slightest bit of thanks for everything you have provided for us. That is horrific that we would speak of the one who created us, given us everything, and has given us every opportunity to be reconciled with him by sending his son Jesus Christ into the world. If you think that God is unfair, pray that God might give you a better and a clearer picture of who he is and that also that he might humble us to better understand who we really are. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, these are difficult chapters to, to read, to understand, to apply. Lord, we know that all you have given, you have given for your good. We thank you that all of your ways are perfect and just. You tell us that your ways are not our ways. And we need to know and trust that you are infinitely good. Help us to see something more of how grand, holy, pure and perfect and just and good you are. Help us from being deceived to think so highly either of ourselves or of mankind in general. We desperately need you. And we thank you that the only hope we had for reconciliation with you was provided by not by our improved method of living but by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So work in us, change us, that we might behold your glory and enjoy you and that we might want to hold out that hope to those who are yet to know you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.